Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I didn't think I'd say this, but I'm going to say it. And I hate to say it. But if I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation because there has never been so many lies, so much deception. There has never been anything like it. You know, with prior Republican nominees for president, I disagreed with them on politics, policies, principles, but I never questioned their fitness to serve. Donald Trump is different. Donald Trump sure is different, and his supporters say that's why he has their vote. But the things he has said also make many people question, how did he get to be the Republican nominee, and what does that say about us? On the flip side, there's Hillary Clinton, who some hate just as much as Donald. She's certainly qualified, and she's plenty civil. But civility doesn't mean a guaranteed win in November. There's a thing called trust, too. But that's a show for another day. Today, we're talking about civility. No matter who you support, it's fair to say this presidential campaign season has gone to new lows. We'll find out more about the history of civility. And if Trump is a sign that having good manners doesn't mean that much anymore. Has this presidential race made conversations in your home tense? Are you dreading the next time you have to see your in-laws? And no matter who wins, will you be able to survive Thanksgiving dinner this year? Coming up, we'll talk with a couple. He supports Trump, she supports Clinton, and a family psychologist will join us with a gentle reminder, we can all get through this without disowning any relatives. As far as your Facebook friends, if they've offended you this political season, well, what are you waiting for? Unfriend them. We want to hear from you today. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now by phone is Keith J. Bybee. He's professor of law and political science at Syracuse University. He's author of the new book, How Civility Works. Keith, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we've been hearing that this presidential race, it's been referred to as one of the most uncivil political contests in the U.S., in U.S. history. Do you agree with that? Uh, I do agree with it, but I think it's important to recognize that you can think about the current election, and oftentimes you can think about bursts of incivility in in at least two ways. One way uh, to look at this, and and particularly the actions of uh, Donald Trump, but to some extent Hillary Clinton as well, are not so much acts of incivility that are attempting to destroy some consensus view of the respect we owe one another, but more as acts of provocation designed to attract attention. Someone who engages in a kind of strategic rudeness counts on agreement and counts on the existence of some consensus uh, over what constitutes good manners. They then violate uh, that code of conduct and use the outrage that's generated as a result to attract attention to a particular issue or to the person themselves. And sometimes we see that in politics. It's not an assault on civility so much as a use of the existence of consensus beliefs about appropriate behavior. But other times, and I think we're seeing some of this this campaign, it's an effort to displace, uh, if not tear down, 
consensus understandings of what constitutes appropriate behavior and replace them with a recalibrated standard of respect. And it's the latter uh, standard that I think we, we might be seeing now. And, and frankly, we've seen at many periods throughout American history. Let's talk about that. In your book, or I think I see us on an article that you that you wrote um, talking about how civility has been challenged. Let's look at the civil rights movement, for instance. That's a great example, because we often think of the civil rights movement as yielding, as it certainly did, important legislative achievements, uh, leading to important statutes like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But part of the work and part of the challenge of the civil rights movement was to confront and reverse a well-established form of racial etiquette that surrounded and sustained Jim Crow segregation. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about this racial etiquette in his letter from a Birmingham jail. There were ways of behaving that enacted a racial hierarchy. In order to be a polite or courteous individual, you participated in a, a, a kind of well, social life uh, that put whites on top and African Americans on the bottom. So part of the work of the civil rights movement was to change civility, to make it more inclusive, make it more egalitarian. And there have been other episodes like this throughout American history. And I think the lesson it teaches is that civility is not outside of our politics. It's not a standard that we can appeal to to just restrain and pacify our disputes. Instead, it's something that's often the subject of political conflict itself, something we determine through our disputes. So it might seem odd to compare what's happening in this contentious presidential campaign to the historic civil rights movement in the 20th century, but in the sense that both of them are involved in a politics of civility, trying to determine what will count as our standard of appropriate behavior, there's really a connection between the two. Let's talk more about, you mentioned provocation earlier. Uh, in your book, you mentioned, again, strategic incivility. So uh, the idea that Donald Trump is using, you know, pushing the boundary, saying things that other people, you know, wouldn't want to say in public, that that's a way to appeal to certain um, supporters. It can be. You know, you can think of this strategic incivility as, as a kind of jujitsu that uh, um, provokes people, but not for the sake of, of just making them angry, uh, but for the sake of redirecting uh, their attention towards a new set of questions. And Donald Trump, before he ran for president, is a well-known self-promoter and showman, and uh, he's really quite adept at winning the news cycle. I think we've seen that again and again uh, over this very long presidential election season. He's, he's really a master uh, at gaining attention. I think what's interesting and what moves us beyond maybe talk of strategic incivility in the case of the Trump campaign is that many of his followers uh, like him probably principally because he tells it like it is, because he says what, what other politicians won't say. And I don't think that they, they like that just simply because it generates outrage. Uh, I, I think at least among some of his followers, a, a large plurality of the electorate, they're interested in recalibrating. Uh, our understanding of civility, of, of changing this baseline understanding of respect that we owe one another in public life. And if that's the case, then this debate over what's acceptable to say is going to continue well after the November election is done, regardless of who wins. 
I'm speaking with Keith J. Bybee. He's professor of law and political science at Syracuse University. He's author of the new book, How Civility Works. You know, Keith, um, when did you decide to write this book? Uh, Were you observing the the campaign season and you thought now's the good time to talk about civility? You you know, I I wish that were the case, that I had a finger uh, in the wind and and saw coming uh, a historic campaign that would raise in in a bold way these deep questions about appropriate behavior. But in fact, I've been thinking about manners uh, for some time, and and I've used them in in previous scholarship of mine uh, as an analytical lens for trying to understand how uh, Americans think about courts and judges. Many Americans see judges as impartial arbiters, but the same large number of Americans also worry that judges are motivated by political factors. So wondering how it could be that people could at once be skeptical uh, of judges and believe that maybe judges are not quite saying what they mean when they chalk up their decisions to principles of law, uh, but nonetheless accept judges even as they're skeptical, led me to uh, a rich historic literature on uh, politeness, courtesy, and civility where uh, we accept civility, we think it's important, but we often doubt its authenticity. Uh, We worry that people are just being polite, that they don't actually like us, uh, that they're uh, just uh, behaving appropriately. Yet nonetheless, we think uh, civility is important. So I came to it for these kind of uh, more uh, scholarly reasons. Uh, But once I started to think more squarely about civility, apart from uh, the question of public perceptions of the judiciary, uh, I, I realized that I was coming to it at a time when Um, really uh, much of the country was going to be confronted front and center with this question of appropriate behavior. You mentioned um, the importance of of people um, seeing someone acting genuine. So again, Trump saying saying what he thinks, um, and that's something that people see as an advantage if they support him. But on the flip side, if you look at Hillary, you know she's she could be considered the more civil candidate, but that doesn't mean people like her or think that she's being genuine because she's a politician. You know, you can't believe everything she says. No, you know, and and I think that's the kind of uh, the doubleness of civility is that uh, we. As we say, civility, the definition of it, is uh, the baseline of mutual respect. We owe one another in public life. It's it's appropriate behavior. It's how we think people ought to behave. But uh, when one is behaving civilly, there's no guarantee that you actually mean it. Someone could be uh, polite to you because they're actually a gracious person, genuinely a gracious person. Um, Or they could be an unrepentant rogue and still be unfailingly polite. There's a, no requirement that your intentions match up with your behavior when it comes to civility. So there's constantly uh, suspicion that's there whether somebody really means it. And that, seem, that suspicion really does seem to, um, to attend to many of Hillary Clinton's actions. Um, she is, uh, of the two candidates, uh, much more conventionally civil. Um, but I think there's, there's this longstanding concern uh, whether her intentions match her behaviors. You know, I, and as an illustration of this, how big the gap can be between uh, intentions and behavior, you know, we see in this switching from Clinton to Trump, the uh, video that was released on Friday of conversation that uh, Donald Trump had with Billy Bush uh, uh, on the bus. Uh, and you see them talking one way on the bus and then instantly switching gears and behaving quite differently once they're off the bus. Now, that's a, that's a uh, pretty um, 
egregious example of how great the distance can be between intentions and behavior. But it's true for all of us when we are engaged in uh, cordial behavior. Uh, do we really mean it? It's, it's hard to know many times uh, because civility is as civility does. It's not a matter of intentions. And so the suspicion, uh, whether we're really good people or whether we're just acting like good and decent people, is one that is baked into uh, the activity of civil behavior. And then beyond behavior, I mean, don't we need civility to to um, encourage cooperation, that we get along, that we learn to have disagreements, but it doesn't mean that we're going to ridicule or uh, degrade someone because of their, you know, their opinions? Well, that's exactly right. That's the great promise of civility. You know, if you think it's possible to, to make everybody agree, uh, make sure that we all have the same views and all have the same values, uh, then you wouldn't need civility. We could just all be real friends. Uh, that's one view, um, but in a society like ours, it's very large, incredibly diverse, incredibly dynamic. Uh, you have lots of people with conflicting interests, conflicting beliefs, and yet we still have to work with one another. We still live together in society. And civility provides um, a kind of lingua franca, a, a mechanism by which we can all get along, even if we deeply disagree, even if we don't particularly like one another. Uh, civility gives us a mechanism of displaying signs of respect for others and in turn uh, communicating that we ourselves should be shown similar signs of respect. So it's an it's a important social lubricant, and not just lubricant, it's uh, also it's grease and it's glue. It allows us, uh, you know, kind of smooths out the friction between us, but it um, holds us together. Um, and allows us to gain cooperative, collectively beneficial activity. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Keith J. Bybee. He's professor of law and political science at Syracuse, author of the new book, How Civility Works. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Keith, you mentioned that video that broke over the weekend uh, with uh, Donald Trump and this um, uh, TV host on a bus uh, with very vulgar language. Why was that the breaking point? Again, when we look back at the campaign season, um, you write about this too. I mean, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton has brought this up. Uh, Trump has insulted many people from many backgrounds. You know, Mexican immigrants are rapists. John McCain's not a hero because he was a POW. A journalist has a disability. He mocks them. Why was that video, why did that appear to be the breaking point for many Americans? I, I think there are a couple of reasons, and, and uh, all of which have some truth to it. I, I think one of the reasons is, just as you said, there have been many, uh, uh, many violations of uh, appropriate electioneering etiquette. And um, at some point, you know, it's just a bridge too far. So there's that. I think there's also just the fact that we can look at the calendar. Uh, we're now in October. Uh, many... Uh, uh, public officials who are running for re-election have a much clearer sense of where they stand in their own race uh, with uh, the election, you know, just a, less than a month away. And um, so they're able to make, um, I think, uh, decisions that before they were waiting to see uh, what polls looked like. But I think the, the reason for our purposes that's most important is that that uh, tape really revealed this gap that I was referring to earlier between uh, the outward signs, conventional civil behavior, and inward intentions, true beliefs. 
one of the uh, one of the bases on which uh, Donald Trump has been able to win so much support is is his reputation as a straight shooter, a truth teller, a person who tells it like it is. And what we see in that tape is that he's not telling it like it is. Uh, he gets off the bus and behaves in a way that's very different uh, than uh, the, the kind of banter, the vulgar banter that he was engaging in uh, with that, uh, that television host. And so I, I think part of it is, is that's, a, that's a damaging piece of information to have uh, in the case of somebody who is want support on the basis of their brutal honesty. Uh, you see them engaging in uh, artificial behavior. And, and so it, it, it's added to those other reasons identified. You know, it's, uh, it's just one the straw that broke the camel's back. Plus, we're getting close enough to the election that self-interested political actors uh, have a much clearer sense of which way the wind is blowing. Um, before we had to break, you know, we were talking, looking at, we, we played a clip from that debate Sunday night, and I think a lot of people at home were, were, you know, scratching their heads when you saw just the, 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 the feeling, the tension on stage, this, like, obviously animosity, animosity between uh, these two candidates. And then there was that last question. Um, I'd love to hear your take on how the candidates handled that final question of Sunday night's debate. Let's hear that. I respect his children. His children are incredibly able and devoted, and I think that says a lot about Donald. I don't agree with nearly anything else he says or does, but I do respect that. And I think that is something uh, that, as a mother and a grandmother, is very important to me. Uh, I will say this about Hillary. She doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. I respect that. I tell it like it is. She's a fighter. I disagree with much of what she's fighting for. I do disagree with her judgment in many cases. But she does fight hard, and she doesn't quit, and she doesn't give up. And I consider that to be a very good trait. Keith, you know, was that, in a sense, a preview of the future of civility in America? I hate your guts, but I can probably come up with at least one nice thing to say about you when right. I Right. You know, uh, I hesitate to call it a triumph of civility, but... Uh I think it's maybe as close to a triumph as we're likely to see in these debates. And it, it describes precisely what civility um, is designed to do. Civility might have the consequence if you and I are cordial to one another long enough. We may come to genuinely, genuinely like and respect one another. But for uh, civil behavior to prevail, that kind of mutual affinity is not essential. Uh, it's not required. Um, it might be a nice uh, side product of our civil interactions. And that's what you saw on graphic display in that final exchange. Two candidates who, as you say, uh, said outright, I don't like you, um, but uh, said, you know, I can still see some value in the positions you take or um, something else that you've done that's not political, in Donald Trump's case, the, uh, helping to raise his children, um, that is is something that we can find a basis on which we can interact in a restrained and peaceable fashion. Uh, just because people don't like each other doesn't mean that they can't, in some at least thin sense, get along. 
Keith J. Bybee is professor of law and political science at Syracuse University, author of the new book, How Civility Works. Thanks for talking with us today, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, we want you to join the conversation because we're talking about how this presidential race is impacting your personal life, your family. Does your spouse support the candidate you aren't supporting? Did you even talk to each other after that last debate? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just talked about the role of civility in our lives in the context of this year's presidential race. It's been a tumultuous campaign season. Is that tension finding its way into your home, depending on who you support? It's not uncommon to see political divisions in families, but this year, does it feel different? What's your take? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We did get some Facebook comments. Uh, one from Leah. My husband and I cannot talk about politics at all. It just makes us both angry. Another from Tony. Yes, it's ridiculous, but let it don't let it come between you. So I wanted to also introduce you to our in-studio guest, a family psychologist is joining us now as we continue our conversation about how the political season impacts our personal lives. Dr. Laura Saunders is a licensed psychologist at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. And before we hear from Dr. Saunders, I wanted to bring into the conversation a couple who are in the situation that I just described. The husband supports Trump. The wife supports Clinton. Mandy Statmiller is a columnist for New York Magazine. Her column is called Unwifeable. Her husband is also on the line. Pat Dixon hosts the New York City Crime Report at crimereport.nyc. Mandy and Pat, welcome to the show. Hi. So how long have you been married, Mandy? Uh, We got married in November, so we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. And did you discuss political views and values before getting married? Not really, no. And Pat, what about you? So um, I hear that you're a, a Trump supporter. How has this impacted your relationship? Well, I mean, not significantly, truly. I mean, uh, it's uh, to me, it, I think the fact that it's an election year is really the only reason that it's, uh, that, it, that it seems so intense at the moment. Now, Mandy, you in your column, you did write about um, what it's like to be married to a Trump supporter. You know, how did you first find out and, and how have you navigated that in your marriage? Well, uh, so Pat has a show called New York City Crime Report, and we've fought about this almost every week on the show, I would say. Um, And it just started with him kind of expressing his support. And Pat is a comedian. So, you know, he says that part of his appeal is that, you know, Trump is almost like having the first uh, stand-up comedian uh, who would be president? Um, and he kind of and and it just it started out almost like Trump's candidacy, where it was a little more you know kind of lighthearted. Um, but I feel like it's you know just become more and more. How could you support him? And when you watch Sunday night's debate, any change in your views? Um, for for, for me. Uh, no, I, I was actually impressed that Trump, um, you know, I, I didn't see how he was going to come out of that. And I thought he I thought he did decent. So just from a kind of like horse race standpoint, um, 
you know, completely devoid of passion. I, you know, thought he, I thought he did well. Uh, but no, of, of, of course not. I, you know, definitely still support Clinton. And how about you, Pat? Uh, well, no, no, no change. Uh, I was happy to see the, uh, I was happy to see the debate go so well for Trump. And uh, I, um, nope, I can't say there's a, a, a strong change. You know, earlier in the show, we're talking about civility. You know, some people look at this uh, campaign season and they think civility truly is dead. Um, It's gotten personal or people may not be as open about who they're supporting. Uh, Pat, have you felt that at all, that people may be judging you because, you know, you're a Trump supporter? Oh, no, not at all. I've got nothing but acceptance everywhere I go. And what about you, Mandy? Are you are you open? Obviously, you wrote about it. Did you hear from other uh, people when you wrote about your relationship? Well, you know how they've been navigating this. Uh, yeah, I I have heard that. Um, I I've gotten emails from people who, you know, have asked me, "Hey, can you tell me, you know, how do you, how how do you deal with this issue and not take it personally?" Um, you know, and I, to me, it's just that. You know, I think that who a person is is determined by their their actions and their whole character and not their political beliefs. Dr. Saunders, again, is in studio uh, with us. Again, you're a psychologist. What advice do you have for married couples? Well, I think in any of these situations, you want to have strategies to resolve conflicts. Um and sometimes that strategy is agreeing to disagree. So just this weekend, I was at a, an extended family gathering, and I had to tell my son, do not bring up politics in this setting. I already knew in advance that there were people that had a different political point of view. So instead of creating conflict, I told him to not bring it up to avoid conflict. And that's sometimes what we have to do. We have to agree to disagree and kind of put things aside. Um, that you can communicate your feelings assertively, but not blame people and become aggressive. And unfortunately, this is a uh, an election season where there's been a lot of aggression, a lot of verbal aggression, um, and it's really kind of changed the whole discourse. And which is why I think, you know, the first segment on c- civility was so timely because it really makes sense. We've really lost civility in this election cycle. And what is it about um, supporting different political candidates and families that gets us so riled up? I mean, our family are people that we love, right? These candidates, I mean, really, do we have an affinity for them? Right. I think we do. And I think that's why we're a little bit more motivated to resolve conflicts. But I think what happens is when you're in a family, you just assume that you have the same values and you assume that you're similar in so many ways. And when a striking difference like this comes up, I think it's really distressing for people. So they get hyper-focused on what we disagree on instead of all the things that they actually agree on. So after the election, I'll turn back to our couple on the phone, um, Andy Statmiller again and Pat Dixon. After the election, you know, do you think there'll be any changes in your household? Will things seem uh, the same? Or can you talk about that? Oh, are you talking to me? Yep. Sorry. Yep. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that it'll definitely be better once it um, once the election's over for for sure. Because I don't think that we'll be trying to change each other's uh, minds anymore. You know, I mean, I think that we will stop sending each other links and we'll stop, um, you know, making making the case for changing each other's minds because. You know, it'll be decided. The election will be over. I hear Pat laughing. <laughs> yeah, I think we might stop debating the election once it happens. 
Uh, and uh, really, there's not. I, I, honestly, I, I haven't seen uh, a lot of uh, light coming through the crack as far as trying to change Mandy's mind since the beginning uh, on that. So I kind of gave up uh, pretty early in the in this whole election, and and uh, and, and really with, with discussing it with anyone. I mean, I, it's it's easy to see that. Uh, but really, there's not a lot. I mean, I know there's a lot of undecided people. Uh, I'm not meeting a lot of them. Well, before I let you go, I just wanted to read a tweet to Mandy. Uh, we heard from a listener named Aaron. Uh, she writes, or he writes, oh, my God, married to a Trump supporter, hashtag deal breaker. <laughs> yeah, to me, um, that makes me want to vote for Trump um, <laughs> because I, you know, I, I, I honestly, I have been aghast at the uh, level of uh, condescension and arrogance amongst uh, the, the 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 left who hasn't even taken you know an ounce of time or empathy to understand where the you know millions of disaffected uh, voters' hearts are coming from that are being rallied and energized by Trump. Um, I to me you know this election is all about the the death of empathy and and nuance and and it just it, it honestly really has uh revolted me the amount of people who've said oh my god you have to divorce him it's just like when would you ever think that was appropriate to tell someone and how how dare you make these assumptions about someone um uh based on you know their political parties and 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 beliefs you know uh so <laughs> I'm definitely voting for Clinton, but I just the fact that people think that they can uh, bully someone, you know, I think it's a deal breaker, someone who would send a tweet like that, honestly. Well, I want to thank Mandy Statmiller, a columnist for New York Magazine. Her column is called Unwifeable. Also, her husband, Pat Dixon, who hosts the New York City Crime Report at CrimeReport.nyc. Thanks for giving us your perspective. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I wanted to turn back to our psychologist. You were listening to, uh, to Mandy kind of react to that. Again, when we talked about civility, there seems to be this judgment, depending on who someone's supporting, of that particular person. And it, it just seems like we've kind of we've all entered a new low. We have all entered a new low. And I think what's not uncommon, in the point that was coming up, is this concept of litmus test, right? Relationships sometimes have litmus tests. Now, family relationships, we don't have as much choice there, right? We are related to who we are related to. Um, but uh, but romantic relationships and, and friendships have have a sense of choice. So sometimes there's litmus tests. It's like the old Seinfeld episode where uh, Elaine had a litmus test for her boyfriends, whether or not they were pro-life or pro-choice. And she she couldn't get past a certain point in the relationship without dealing with that litmus test question. Um, and so it's a little surprising to me that the couple didn't hadn't ever discussed political views because... Um, it's kind of a big deal, and, and it, it often shapes a lot of other um, views and values. I wanted to just bring up, again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. In studio with me is Dr. Laura Saunders, a licensed psychologist at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. Today we're talking about how this election season has impacted your personal life. Has the 2016 election changed the dynamic of your family gatherings? Has your family established rules, like Dr. Saunders mentioned earlier, to avoid potential conflict? If so, what's your strategy? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Liz is calling from Durham. Liz, you're on Where We Live. 
Hey, Lucy, thanks for giving me the opportunity. So, so tell us, I mean, obviously this is not the first presidential election that uh, you or I have seen, but there's something about this particular one that's, that's really making people defensive. Um, can you talk about what you've experienced? Well, I think, and I appreciate everything all the other callers and your speakers have said, but for me, it is very hard to separate a person's politics from their values. It would be easy to say, and it would be wonderful to imagine that once this is over, we can all go back to the way we were. But as for the litmus test, I, I agree with that. I think it's unfortunate, but I thought with a lot of family and friends <clears throat> that we had similar values and a similar vision for our children and our grandchildren's future. And unfortunately, having heard the rhetoric coming from the other side, the vitriol, the racism, the misogyny, it's left me with a feeling that I never really knew this person. And even when it's over, if you look at how much anger is on, particularly the side of the left, it's hard to believe that these people will just say, yeah, it's over. I'm going to accept this the way it is. It's just extremely disappointing for me and disappointing for my children who are in their 20s to find out that we all thought over the years we had come to some sort of middle ground with our extended family, and I thought I had with many of my friends. And I find that maybe that's not the case. It's almost like a very, very angry person has given everyone permission to be who they really are, and I'm afraid that that's a feeling that will stick with me indefinitely. I'm curious if any of your, uh, any of your guests can speak to that issue and how we are going to get by all this mm-hmm. together. Well, Liz, uh, stay on the line. I'll have uh, Dr. Saunders respond. So there is a strategy when we're trying to resolve conflicts around accepting and respecting individual opinions, that opinions are not always going to be the same as ours, and that what I liked about um, what the, the other couple had said is that it's not trying to force compliance on someone else. I can hold my point of view and I can hold my point of view really strongly, but that's different than trying to force compliance on someone else. We can find areas of common agreement. I I would agree with your statement that there does seem to be a set of values attached to, you know, the left or the right, if that's how we're going to divide things. But even those words are so divisive. It's, It's as if there's not a continuum. There's only one extreme or the other. It's such a binary point of view as opposed to being a continuum. And, you know, I wanted to bring up earlier I'd mentioned uh, Facebook. So obviously uh, Facebook, you know, gives a lot of people the chance to put their opinions out there, whether we want to know about them or not. But it's easy to, if we don't want to be, you know, exposed to it, we can, you know, hide them from our news feed or we could even unfriend them. But your family is your family. And, you know, how do you, you know, navigate um, if somebody, you know, maybe does not support the candidate that you support and you have these, you know, these these conversations, Liz, I'll, I'll turn back to you. I mean, how do you see yourself navigating your Thanksgiving dinner um, post-election? Um, fortunately, last year's Thanksgiving dinner was was fairly calm, thank God. But this year, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, in a modern society, like many of us, we don't all live right next door to mom and dad. We don't all live right next door to our cousins. So getting together is something that I think you can prepare for that you can have conversations as a family about how you're going to handle it. But I will tell you, and not for my sake only, because, you know, I I can handle a tough conversation, but particularly with older members of the family, you tend not to want to cause any upset. 
And to be frank, I've chosen the position to try to avoid any really specific situations that are going to cause those things to erupt. Also, I have grown children, as I said, who have also their own strong opinions and ideas, and I certainly wouldn't encourage them not to express those. But we have had conversations where we've said, listen, you have to understand, these are people who grew up in a different time, with a different set of values. A lot of this is based on fear, particularly for our seniors, because they're afraid for their futures. Their futures have not turned out the way they thought they would. So a lot of the rhetoric that you hear is just an expression of that. So we just try to be understanding and look at them as they're suffering and we need to give them a chance to work this out. But I will tell you, when it comes to social media, you can take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to put up with it if you don't want to. Um, I do try to stay open to other opinions, but I believe people hide behind social media. So I think a lot of the real nastiness comes through there. So you have to either decide to be in or out. And in many cases, people decide to be out, and I completely respect that. I like to stay on social media because I like to support others. I like the support they give me, and it gives me an opportunity to see what's going on in the world. And I think we have control of that. And as long as I have control of what I can say, what I can read, and what I can be part of, I'm, I'm okay with the social media situation. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for your perspective. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we head to break, I wanted to turn back to uh, Dr. Laura Saunders, a licensed psychologist at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. Something Liz said there about uh, the generational gaps. I mean, this is, again, not the first election where you may have, like, your grandparents or your parents supporting another candidate, and you may support someone else. But, again, it just feels like there's more tension this time around. I mean, how do you, people navigate that generational gap? Well, what I really like the, the point that she brought up is this issue of fear, right? And and th- I think that's that's really what's getting played upon in this political season. It's fear, you know, it's fear in the area of immigration. It's fear in the area of economy. It's fear in the area of national security. So they're playing upon fear and really cracking open that divide. I mean, what, if we're thinking about that Thanksgiving dinner table, where what we need to do is we need to focus on areas of common interest, right? We need to focus on agreement instead of areas of disagreement or opposition. But a lot of this rhetoric is really based in fear. I want to invite you to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the role of civility and how the election can impact your personal life. We're going to take your calls, your comments after the break. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our show's looking for your questions. We want to hear from you. Here's a topic we're going to dive into in an upcoming show. What have you always wanted to know about how your town government works? We want to know what you're curious about. You can enter your question at our website, WMPR.org. Just look for the Ask WMPR banner. We'll be in touch with you if we find an answer to your question. Today, we're focusing on this extraordinary presidential race and how, depending on which candidate you support, it can cause serious tension in your personal life, including in your family. In studio with me is Dr. Laura Saunders, licensed psychologist at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. And we're going to now turn to your calls. Uh, First of all, let's take Katrina. Katrina's calling from New York City. Hi, Katrina. What's your question or comment? Hi. How are you today? I'm doing well. So I just wanted to say that, you know, um, me and my family definitely don't have the same political views in any way, shape, or form. 
But in the past, we've really been arguing for our favorite candidate, whereas now it feels like we're just arguing against the one that the other one's voting for. And there's really no positive for, like, my candidate or their candidate, but we just hate each other's choice more. And I feel like that's really different than the past. That's interesting. Dr. Saunders? Yeah, that is that is really good perspective, and I think that's fairly accurate. And it, it is because of how extreme our, our points of view have gotten. And I've seen that same phenomenon over and over again. That's not so much we're trying to convince other people how much we like our candidate. It's really all the evils of the other candidate. We're getting a Facebook message from Carol. Uh, she writes, my husband of 43 years and I have always been on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Even in the Bush years, when I had a very visceral reaction to the man, we could talk. This year is very different. We've agreed not to talk about it. And that is interesting. I remember um, back when George W. Bush was president, people he was very polarizing. People either loved him or hated him. But again, this this season, it just seems, again, that there's, tr- you know, people are having trouble navigating if they know somebody likes a particular candidate. It's like a judgment again on that particular person. And I just wanted to promote to the Colin McEnroe show later today. Uh, they've actually uh, invited uh, several supporters of Donald Trump uh, to the show to talk about why they support um, Donald Trump, because there have been criticism that, again, in the media, that there's... Um, a bias and people that support Trump aren't able to really get their views out there. And there is a judgment call. So if you want to listen to that, the Colin McEnroe show, that's at one o'clock today. I wanted to turn now to another uh, caller. Allison's calling from New Milford. Allison, you're on the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I think this is a really great topic. Uh, My boyfriend and I disagree on politics. We've been together for two, two and a half years now. Um, and I think it's really interesting because I used to be pretty naive, and I I thought that people I liked or respected as intelligent would agree with my politics. Um, so it's been eye-opening to be uh, in a relationship with somebody who disagrees with me and who I still love and respect. Um, we grew up in households with opposite politics and experiences, blue-collar versus white-collar, um, this election, I support Hillary, um, but he's had a Gary Johnson sticker on his fridge since 2012, so he's been a longtime supporter. Um, I'm pretty glad he doesn't support Trump. I think I would have a hard time with that, but he really doesn't like Hillary, and he's having a hard time with my support of her. Um, so it's been interesting in our relationship to have productive and kind conversations and hold true to our values without taking it personally or getting into to fights, letting our blood pressure up. Well, that's that's good to hear. And I wanted to turn back to our psychologist in the studio. You know, isn't there something to be said about learning to communicate our differences? Obviously, Allison has been able to figure that out with her boyfriend. Yeah. And it is coming back to common ground. So, you know, I, I like that the caller was talking about values, right? It's coming back to the values. So in general, in a relationship, you're going to have many values in common. So that's what you want to stay focused on. It is not it's, it's not reasonable that you would agree on every single topic. So it is learning to find ways to resolve conflicts and negotiate some of those differences in your values. John's calling from Kensington. John, you're on Where We Live. I just want to say that I disagree with all previous speakers. I think we should encourage a diversity of thought at our dining room tables, particularly during the holiday season where multi-generations are getting together. What would this country be like if... Old man Kennedy didn't want his kids talking politics at the kitchen table or the Bush man, or maybe they're, you know, John Quincy Adams. 
I think we should, and I don't want to talk to people that I agree with. I want to talk to people I disagree with, and I don't want to find common ground. I want to, ha- I want to solicit their opinions and listen to them and respect them, but I want my children to be able to speak up and say, I disagree with you, Dad. All right, John, and, and Dr. Saunders wants to, to respond. So <clears throat> that assumes that there's going to be civil discourse, and that also assumes that there are points where you can kind of move on your on your view. So that is a great strategy, and I agree. We don't always want to surround ourselves with people who agree. it isn't civil. Well, sometimes, right, as long as it stays civil. Sometimes everything's messy. Uh, uh, you know, American history is filled with messy. So that's okay, too. You don't get mad because I disagree with someone or they disagree with me. Even at my table, I want them to disagree with me. Well, that's great because you don't personalize it. That's great. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be messy. Politics is a messy business. That's okay. Well, I I think I want to sit at your dinner table, John. I'd be curious to see how you navigate (laughs) the complexities of our I want to always be the devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, if everyone's going one way, I'm not afraid to say I disagree with everyone in the room. That's what America's all about. Well, fair point. Thank you, John, uh, for your your comment. We got to get to some more callers. Jerry's been holding from Naugatuck. Jerry, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, good morning. How's everybody? We're doing well. What's your question or comment? Uh, well, you know, much in the the same vein as the last caller. Um, but more, um, first of all, my wife and I have been married uh, just about 15 years, and we we agree completely with politics, uh, which I think is, you know, very important, you know, as far as uh, how we intend to raise our children and our values and everything. But the whole idea of um, that we can't have a productive conversation, I mean we as in society, can't have a productive conversation between two people that disagree, uh, I I think it's very telling. I mean, you know, the whole idea, the whole basis for democracy is is having two people in a room that, that disagree but can actually talk through it and compromise to come up with a solution and i think you know if you if you look at that in in detail or with a you know a a magnifying glass i should say that's really a a bigger problem that we see in washington is that you know we like to surround ourselves with people that have the same ideas and values as us and somebody that doesn't we automatically vilify them and, and 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 you know say if you you know it's either my way or the highway when you know the we really want people to embrace, you know, opposite opinions and then and then learn how to compromise. Otherwise, nothing ever gets done. Well, thank you so much for for your comment, Jerry. I want to take one more call before we have to end the show. Time's running short. Chris, you've been on hold from Wallingford. Uh, just quickly, what's your question or comment? You know, I'm just saddened that there's a, a complete lack of compassion on both candidates. I feel like, you know, I've... Uh, I really don't even want to vote, you know. I'm, it, it sounds horrible, but neither of the candidates really stands for anything that I stand for. Um, you know, and it's sad. It's so sad to see so much anger and no compassion. And I think it's a, it's probably one of the worst relationships, both both parties. It's like a terrible marriage. They, you know, I don't know. It's saddening. It's incredibly saddening to me. I, you know, Donald Trump, I think, he brings up a lot of great points. I mean, and... And I and I would like to vote for him, but you know I just can't. I can't because I don't see any compassion in the man. And uh, watching that debate, like I had to turn it off. I just it, it made me feel uneasy, incredibly uneasy. And just to touch on fear, you know the middle class is shrinking. People are afraid. 
And a common response is anger, you know, but we have to embrace sort of community. We are a giant community. Our country is a community, and we have to have compassion for one another. We can't just get angry uh, at each other. It, it solves nothing. Well, thank you, Chris, for your comment. Um, before we uh, head to, to the end of the show, Dr. Saunders, for people who've been listening, who want to uh, learn how to better navigate, you know, we can have difference in opinions without personal attacks. What would you tell them? Right. Well, I want to go back. I want to take this full circle, and I want to go back to the issue of civility. So you're right. We can communicate our feelings. We can accept and respect individual differences. Um, not everyone will agree with us. It is important to hear other perspectives and other points of view. But it happens best in a way that is civil and respectful. A Facebook comment from Marie. She writes, I definitely have a litmus test for my marriage partner. Politics and religion are a deal breaker for both my husband and me. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I think a lot of people have that litmus test, not just Elaine from Seinfeld. Well, I want to uh, thank our, our listeners and, and our callers for, for joining in on the conversation as I think it's about three weeks now until Election Day. So you can get through it, everyone. I, think, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Laura Saunders, thank licensed you. psychologist at Hartford Hospital's Institute of Living. We want to thank you for coming on the show today. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Again, you can check out our website, wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. And if you want to continue this conversation, don't forget to listen to the Colin McEnroe show later today at one uh, where they're going to have supporters of Donald Trump. Let's hear uh, what they have to say. And it's not about putting out a judgment of the person just because we may may, we may uh, support a different candidate. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.